As you make your way to your seat, when you find a Bible, grab it, turn it to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to think, finish up teaching on marriage as a sacrament this morning. We'll be done with marriage for a while. Move on to something else. Any, any biblical subject is great, but you have to deal with it in biblical moderation. You can't just emphasize salvation every service. You'll have a church full of babies. You can't emphasize forgiveness every service. You'll have a church full of folks who don't have any fight in them. You can't emphasize any one subject too long. This is a kingdom. There's much to cover, much, 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 much to cover. And this kingdom keeps expanding, which means our understanding of it must also keep expanding. Ephesians chapter 5 we have, um, we've been covering on the sacraments for a while, and we, we've, there's seven sacraments of the high church, what we would call the high church. That just means churches that exercise a priesthood. We're not one of those. Protestants are not among those. Orthodox, Lutheran, Catholic, those are considered high churches. They have what are called sacraments. We would do well to have the sacraments as well. Um, all a sacrament is, again, to review, is a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. It's a ritual that makes power available. It's a Christian ritual. We're not against those. Now, sometimes when we use the word ritual, we think about maybe some witch doctor or some kind of Mayan, uh, Aztec, I know those are two different tribes, two different nations, plunging the dagger in the heart of a virgin or a child in a ritual, a bloodshed ritual for their demon gods. Um, but when we talk about a ritual, we're speaking of the the act of practicing a rite, R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T. We have rituals in the kingdom. Water baptism is a ritual. Altar calls are rituals. Uh, confession of sin can be a ritual. Communion, we're going to receive communion this morning. This is a ritual or a sacrament. And I want us to hear it. I've taught on this for several weeks now, going into probably the third month. A sacrament is a ritual that makes power available it is a sacrament, it is a ritual that actualizes the mystery that it symbolizes. And we've covered water baptism, we've covered communion. These are symbol, uh, rituals that symbolize and make power available. We covered confession of sin, or what they, confessional and restoration, penance. Catholics do that very ritualistically with their confessional booths. We practice the same thing, we just don't use a man in a booth we use a bended knee or a bent heart in our high priest, Jesus Christ. Uh, we probably maybe bristled a little bit at the act or the thought of penance. That is when a priest prescribes to the believer some other act to commit in addition to their confession. And we on face value will bristle and say, well, there's no other acts to be committed, but you and I do the same thing. And I can tell you that even in pastoring, I have played the role of priest probably more Catholic-like than I would care to admit, because somebody will come to me, they're, they're in some kind of horrific mess. I pray with them in their confessional. Pastor, I did this. What do I do? Well, have you repented yet? No. Well, let's pray and repent. All right. Well, that wipes the slate clean. The blood of Jesus cleanses all that, right? And then I usually say, all right, well, we got to do something to clean this up. That's penance. And we need to do something to make sure this never happens again. That's penance. So we're actually practicing that sacrament just unofficially. And even sometimes when the pastor doesn't prescribe one, you might do it yourself. You might say, oh, I messed up so bad. I'm going to actually go to church on time tonight. I'm going to actually go to pre-service prayer on time tonight. I'm actually going to pray, pray tonight, and I'm going to actually take notes tonight. One person's penance is another person's daily practice. And maybe if you'd make your penance a daily practice, you wouldn't need so much penance pretty good teaching and preaching so far. And we're training and moving towards marriage. So we're just reviewing. We have skipped over some of the others. We haven't talked about uh, anointing the sick with oil. We haven't talked about ordination. And we've, what we focused on the last couple of weeks has been marriage as a sacrament. This is the one that blew my mind when I began studying this a few months ago, that according to the Greek text, marriage is technically the only ritual the Bible calls a sacrament sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentus, which is the equivalent of the Greek mysterion. When Paul says, I show you a great mystery, Christ in the church, husband and wife. So marriage is a true sacrament, is a great mystery. And the other thing we said last week that some of you really were blessed by, because you told me, 
is that when I pointed out there's only two great mysteries, there's 27 mysteries in the New Testament, or mysteries are spoken of 27 times. Only two of them are considered great mysteries. The first being great is the mystery of holiness, and that speaks of the incarnation, that God became flesh, was preached of men, seen of angels, received into the heavens. That is great is the mystery, the incarnation. Marriage is the other great mystery. So this should cause us to esteem marriage at a much higher level than what our culture has. Uh, we've had 20 years of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. 20 years ago when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was very popular, there was another reality show called Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire. And it was all about 12 weeks of television, heavily scripted, of course, where some random person falls in love and marries a millionaire at the end of the three-month television cycle. It hasn't just been the LGBTQ population that has denigrated marriage. The rest of America is guilty as well. <clears throat> the concept of marriage as a sacrament should cause us to treat it with much greater reverence than simply the next stage of American culture or the next stage of humanity. As it is, I'm a child of the 70s, raised in the 80s, graduated high school in the early 90s and college in the late 90s. The American culture has been you get married, you go to high school, got to go to high school. Then you have to go to college. The American culture has said you have to go to college because if you don't go to college, you're a useless man. And if you're a woman, you better get a master's because you are a devil in Prada. <laughs> and then you graduate and you get married and, and you got to have 2.5 kids. We're kind of changing that equation. It's like 1.3 kids and nine animals. And the animals have more rights than the kids do. You have 2.5 kids, and then, you know, that's where, the, that's where, like, the American dream kind of doesn't tell us what to do because it knows in that formula everything's going to crash and burn anyway. What we need to do is begin to look at marriage more biblically. I think our nation once held these thoughts, but modernism, industrial revolution, prosperity, the technology age, and Hollywood have helped to subtly leach any holiness and value out of marriage. What I'm teaching, those of us that are married probably have never considered. I don't say it to beat us up. I say it to raise our understanding for the next generation so that those of us who are parenting can look at our children and say, I'm not just training you to be an adult. I'm going to train you to be a husband one day. I'm going to train you to be a wife one day. I'm not, again, I said it during Sunday schools. We think once the kids can wipe their rear end and make their cereal, we're done parenting. 2% uh, of parenting is done at that point. We have to begin discipling our children about the heaviness, the weightiness of the sacrament of marriage. And just because someone wants to get married doesn't mean they should. Just because someone wants to be water baptized doesn't mean they should. Just because someone wants to take communion doesn't mean they should. Just because someone wants to be ordained into the ministry doesn't mean they should. With all the sacraments, criteria must be met before we allow them to participate in that sacrament. Otherwise, the power that should be made available to them might destroy them. The Bible tells us of the communion elements. If we partake unworthily, we can die prematurely. We can be sick. We can be weak. We ordain somebody who's not called to be ordained, we could destroy their life and their family. And at the same time, we all know it. We testified last week that our church's divorce rate in this church is 63%. My wife wanted me to adjust the statistics. and said, honey, that's not how statistics work. Statistics work how you want them to work. That's why they're statistics. It wasn't 100% fair because some of the folks who are divorced are not married now. But in 47 marriages represented in our church, among those 47 marriages, there are 32 or 33 divorces. And then there are a couple of folks who aren't married who are divorced. Anyway, it just shows that we have a high divorce rate, higher than the Protestant average of 51%. Twice the average of the born again, which is 33%. And 67 times greater than the pagan divorce rate, which is 1%. It shows you the church has no reverence for Christ and his relationship with the body, and therefore we have no understanding about marriage. And we have to change that. I also said last week, and it was a hurtful statement, but it needs to be said again, if marriage is the building block of society, and even the sociologists agree with that statement, then the church in America is guilty of the greatest share of societal destruction. 
we are the ones responsible for the greatest share of societal destruction. So we have to change this. I don't condemn anybody that's been divorced. It's all under the blood. I don't care. We're not asking you. We have to advance forward, though. We have to advance forward. And if you're married today, you can gain a higher and greater understanding for what you're in and rekindle something even better. So what I want to talk about this morning, and I've got a little bit of a, a chart I built. I didn't produce a PowerPoint out of it, but we'll go through it. We hit upon last week the notion that the Jews held marriage and the priesthood on equal footing in some regards. And I don't think that ever crossed our mind that we ought to maybe view marriage or marriage preparation as a minister would for ministry. So what I've built is a chart that shows all the comparisons of marriage and ministry. And if we understand, and I think we do by cultural absorption, we understand the severity of ministry. We understand the weightiness of ministry. We understand the judgment that comes upon ministers and how long it takes to prepare. Then if we were to apply some of the similar understandings to marriage, we would, we would spend our singlehood training and preparing for marriage and not daydreaming and lusting. If you have to qualify for water baptism, if you have to qualify for communion, if you have to qualify for confession, because you can't just hollow confess, if you have to qualify for anointing of oil, if you have to qualify for ordination, why would you not qualify for marriage? So what I want to do is raise our standard. I want to raise our understanding of marriage. We know, we know our culture. It's embarrassing. We have wedding chapels. Anybody can get married anymore. We have folks marrying dogs, folks marrying robots. There's some weirdos in England went and married trees. I'm not sure why. You, you think being married to an intellectual man is boring? Try having a conversation with a tree. I mean, I've heard a woman say, my man's a mighty oak, but that person took it literally. <laughs> and we got some weirdos in the earth, and yet Ephesians 5 says it represents Christ in the church. Let's read this passage, because it'll probably be the only scripture I read, though we'll quote heavily others. Let's begin in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and Jesus is the Savior of the body. We would also say the husband is the Savior of his wife's body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church. Let me pause right there. This is one of the most misquoted scriptures in eschatology. Pastor Vaughn pointed this out to me, to our church 25 years ago. Jesus is not coming back for a glorious church. It's not what the verse says. He is going to present to himself if he has to come back for one, he ain't coming back. Because the church may be hot over here, but dead over there. It may be glorious over here and a dead doldrum over there. And we might have 90% of the body fired up and ready to go. And 10 folks just got born again. And 10 others just backslid. And even a local church that's at 90% running for Christ, you got 10% duds. So there'll never be a glorious church. And it doesn't say he's coming back for one. It says he will present to himself. We might, I might, in my eschatological understanding insert, changing it in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That'll make it glorious. All right. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. As long as you and I have a body, we're full of holes and blemishes and spots and wrinkles. Plus, he'll just leave the part of the body that doesn't belong to him and that he doesn't want in the rapture because I don't believe every Christian's going in the rapture. Not, every, not a single pastor friend of mine across all the denominations looks at their congregation and believes the whole church would make the rapture. Not a single pastor I'm friends with around the world. And I want to say, well, not my church. 
And then I think, well, if I'm the exception to the rule, my church should be highly exceptional. But I know we have issues. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as Christ, excuse me, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. That is, a husband leaving his father and mother and being joined unto his wife, and they too being one flesh. This is a great mystery. This is a great sacrament. Marriage. We said last week marriage is the only lived sacrament. All the other sacraments are events in a service. You can be water baptized in a creek, but if you got church family there, that's a service. You can take communion at home. That's, a, in a sense, a service. All these are momentary acts. Even the wedding ceremony is a momentary act. The longest wedding I've ever done has been like 30 minutes, and that's pushing it. I mean, most weddings, I, I come, we walk in, I think, we don't have a big bridal party, unlike Ben and Jessica. If we don't have a big bridal party, we can be in and out in 20 minutes. I bet we can be in and out in eight, 18 minutes. And usually I'm right. I don't know why you spend two and a half years and 80 grand on 15 minutes. That's insane. I mean, Bezos don't even burn money like that. <laughs> even that at 30 minutes. The longest wedding I've been a part of, we did a wedding in South Africa 10 years ago, and that was an hour and a half. But, but they had me preach. That's part of their wedding tradition. And it's among the Indians there, and you had Muslim Indians and Hindu Indians and Christian Indians. And I said, Pastor Casey, it was his son Alvino and Annie who we married. Uh, I said, what do you preach? He said, brother, everybody agrees on the sanctity of marriage. He says, so preach marriage. And I said, oh, I can do that. So we just went to Genesis, preached an outstanding message, if I might say so myself, for 45 or 50 minutes on marriage from the book of Genesis. The Muslims and the Hindus loved it. And we got to get Christ in there too. Because even the Muslims sanctify marriage, as do the Hindus. It's just the Western American church that goes to Elvis. Let's just get married. Oh, Lord. This is the great mystery. It's a live sacrament that we live out every day or fail every day. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. The New Living Translation says, but I speak how Christ is joined to the church. It represents Christ joined to the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. We looked at last week the Jews compared the priesthood to marriage, and they were disqualifiers from the priesthood, and they said they were disqualifiers from marriage. And that opened up this new can of worms. What if we, as the church, began to look at marriage preparation and marriage qualification in the similar vein as we would preparing for ministry? It would really dial back a lot of unnecessary marriages. Most preacher friends I have won't just marry somebody because they want to be married. It's almost like this is already innate. It's already in us. We already understand. Just because two people are in love doesn't mean you marry them. They can go get married if they want, but it doesn't mean you're going to endorse it and put your hand on it. Just because they've got a baby out of wedlock doesn't mean you put them together. We're going to have to really work to revitalize and re-sanctify the covenant and the sacrament of marriage. And I teach this, though most of us here are married. We, we have a lot of singles, but we've got to teach it to our kids so they don't just run off and date some schmo and marry somebody that they have three kids with and then are divorced in five years because mom and dad, the grandparents, now have to pick up those pieces and now you're failing to teach your kids about marriage hinders your ministry the rest of your life because now you're helping them with a broken family because you quit parenting them at nine when it wasn't fun anymore. So laziness at 9, 10, 11, 12 gets to bite you in the rump from 60 to 85. Amen. And it's painful to watch loved ones, your children, marry deadbeats and duds. But if you raise a dud because you're lazy, they're going to marry your dud. And your kid, your grandkids will be what? What's a dud times a dud? I mean, it's a duddy dud. It's a deadbeat dud. I don't even know what's worse than a dud. Milk toast. 
And now your progeny is dead in Christ. So I made a list and I'm going to walk down it and talk about ministry. And then we're going to turn it and look at those same qualifiers for marriage. And I'll give you, some of you take really good notes. Uh, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. I have 14 points. We're not going to be here all day. We can burn through these pretty quickly. So if you want to take your piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and you can have 14, one through 14. And what we'll do is we'll look at these points for marriage and ministry, and we kind of get the qualifiers for ministry, but we're going to see that it very much is the same for marriage. And in that regard, we might, some of us might say, I have no business being married. And we might agree, yes, but it's too late. You're covenanted, so what you have to do now is up the game. I met years ago, there's a pastor friend of mine, and uh, we got to know each other. He was, he was local. He's no longer local. Um, we were having some lunches, and he's probably five, eight years older than me, been in the ministry quite a few years older, longer than me, but didn't ever have a covering, so his training wasn't as, as well as what had God afforded me. And as we were talking one day at our local restaurant, he stopped and said, you know, listening to you, I realize that if I'm going to be friends with you and run with your group of preachers, I'm going to have to up my game. He said, I don't know why I don't even know anything you're talking about. What, what he, and he said, what am I even doing in ministry? Well, God ordained him and God was doing something, but he knew there was more. So he ran with us for a season and then his marriage fell apart. She abandoned him. She divorced him. She remarried. And nobody who I know who knows him knows even where he is anymore. And I hurt for him because he was a good man. It may be you say, what am I even doing married? And I'm going to say too late because you don't get divorced because you were stupid 20 years ago. You got to trust in God. So let's look at ministry first. And so here's my first point with ministry. Many are called. Sounds like I don't want to get to marriage yet because I'm already thinking there. Many are called. Maybe we do it together. Maybe we do this down the road here. Let's just do it. Marriage and ministry side by side. Point number one, many are called. Many are called to ministry. Many are called to salvation. Many are called to be married. Now we know from the gospels, not everybody is called to be married. There are some who are eunuch for the kingdom's sake. There are some who are called to be eunuchs. And how do you know if you're a eunuch? Can you see yourself never being married? Yeah, I would be happy not being married. You may have a eunuch's grace. But if you go to bed, Lord, I want to be married. You wake up, Lord, I want to be married. Lord, I want to help a man. Lord, I want to be married to a woman. You probably don't have a eunuch's grace. So don't fear when you read the gospels. Oh my God, he's giving me the eunuch's grace. <laughs> you may not have the eunuch's grace. According to what the Talmud said, you may just have bad body odor and bad breath, both which can be fixed by a trip to Walgreens and regular application of both deodorizers. <laughs> Many are called, but we also know because of that, few are chosen. Many are called to ministry. Many are called to the kingdom. Many are called to marriage, but few are actually chosen. And the rest of our list will explain why few are actually chosen. And I'm becoming more and more dogmatic about this. Some of the pastors I've had recent conversations with agree just because someone's of age doesn't mean they need to be married. Just because someone's of age because they can have babies doesn't mean they are mature enough to husband or mature enough to wife. Just because you're lonely, which is typically women, or lusty, that's typically men, doesn't mean you have any business entering into a covenant where you're now responsible for souls. Ministry callings must, this point number three, they must be pursued. Ministry callings must be pursued, as is the calling for marriage. By that we mean, though, it isn't enough to know at eight years old you're called to be a missionary. It's not enough to know at 15 you're called to be a pastor. You've got to begin to pursue it. You've got to begin to give yourself into that. We are recognizing on my Abigail, my nine-year-old, she has a tremendous anointing for worship. She's nine years old. Uh, if it wouldn't ruffle some of your feathers, I would easily use her on a, on a Wednesday night right now to lead worship. I have her regularly come to my office and just play her guitar for me because it manifests an anointing. She's my favorite radio station. I say, Abzi, come up, just play for daddy. And she just plays her songs and I just study my Bible. 
Her sister, who's a pretty good pianist, does not have that worship thing like she does. Now, she could lead worship, but it's not, not the same calling. Bud, he's into G.I. Joe mode, so his instrument is Transformers and G.I. Joes and blowing stuff up. <laughs> it's not enough to know Abzi's called. I, I have to disciple her, and I do regularly disciple her right now. Teach her about worship, expose her to music, expose her to musicians and guitars, and ha I have her in the Psalms. She studies the Psalms every day. As a nine-year-old, she reads Psalms every day because it needs to be in her. Yeah. It has to be pursued. And unfortunately, with Disney, it teaches us happily ever after, so we daydream about marriage, especially for girls and little princesses, but they never pursue it as a calling. Ministry must be pursued, as does marriage. And by that, I mean it's a preparation of the heart. I recognized at 19, I was called to the ministry. And it was really hard for me to stay in college at the point because I thought, what's the point of staying in college if I'm called to ministry? But from that point forward, I wasn't even in church yet. I was floating around churches. Uh, at that point, most of my major decisions were made with ministry in the background of my mind. How will this help ministry? Is this going to feed ministry? I felt like I was called to ministry, so I began to consume the Bible, begin to listen, begin to gobble up books and read doctrinal books because I felt like I was called. Then I ended up in this church in 1996. Uh, it was Easter Sunday. It was the first time I came and set down roots. And that helped prepare. Even though I was 19 going on 20, it was still a pursuit. Still finished my degree, still had a career in geology, did everything towards the aim of being in ministry one day. It wasn't something I bronzed and put on a shelf like baby shoes. It wasn't a plaque I pointed at and said, look, I've got a calling. I participated. I pursued. Has to be the same for marriage. If we know our kids are going to be married, we have to, as we raise them, teach them about being a mommy one day. Teach them about being a daddy. Teach your girls. This is going to sound sexist, but shove it. Teach them how to keep house. Teach boys, too, because they, they got to keep house. We have to teach them how to prepare meals. Teach them how to do laundry. Teach your boys how to prepare meals, because he's going to go through a stage of bachelorhood where he needs to do more than like Uber Eats and like just wear the same clothes five days in a row. That's what college should break them of. <laughs> you're preparing them. And at the same time, you're living in front of them what marriage looks like. This is how mommy and daddy work together as a team. They're already gathering that daddies do this and mommies do this. They're seeing gender normative roles. Because you know what normative means? Normal. If 95% of the people in this nation do it, it's normal. If 5% of the people do it, it's abnormal. You can't. This is why you can't trust modern scientists. Modern scientists say, no, no, that's normal behavior. Sweetie, if only 5% of the people do it, by definition, it's not normal. It's abnormal. If it's a data set, it's an outlier. 5% of a data set is an outlier. It's abnormal. It's not along the arc. Anyway, we're just... Don't go to college. This is your public service announcement. <laughs> Don't go to college. They don't have a clue what they're doing. It's all disturbed. It's all corrupt. Research is corrupt. Any scientific research today is corrupt. There's money involved. They want the outcomes they've already predisposed. That's not science. That's confirmation bias. And there's billions of dollars involved in confirmation bias. Don't go to college. Pray about what God would have you do. It might be college. Hold your breath. Get in and get out as soon as you can. Dust your feet off. Shake it off. Go take a shower in Clorox. Go to a therapist for six weeks, get your diploma, and move on. But maybe God has something else for you other than academia. If you're an academic, be full of the Holy Ghost so that those pagans walk in your office and fall out in the spirit and foam at the mouth. If you have to, take anointing oil and anoint the doorknob to your office every day. So every student's like, what is up with this doorknob? Go through, anoint every seat in your classroom and cast those devils out of those furries. Like Bob Barker, spay and neuter them. Just When academics promote furries, they should put the litter bin right in front of their office. And then I pray a big trucker come along and use it. 
And if they're going to identify as a furry, feed them whiskers and tender vittles. Because if you're really a furry, do it all like a cat. God Almighty, why would we get off on that? Back to pursuing the calling. You got to pursue marriage. Train your kids. You're going to be married one day, sweetie. I got to teach you how to make dinner. You're going to be married one day. I got to teach you how to clean up after yourself. You're going to be married one day. This is what the toilet looks like. This honestly means children have chores at four and five. You don't have princesses. You have children. And you teach them how to make house because it's a biblical commandment. The calling of marriage is pursued just like the calling of ministry. If any of your children feel called to ministry, you should put them around me. I don't know why you don't. If they feel like they're called, well, you know you have somebody that's already pioneered that. Or are you like the old school that just brags about it, puts it on a shelf, and does nothing with it? How about follow the pastor day? Bring them up. Let them see what I do all day on a Tuesday. So it's not just pulpit time. This is the least significant thing I do. I shouldn't say significant. It's the least. This is the easiest thing I do all week. Everything else is way more difficult, and this is the least amount of time I put forth in the kingdom all week. So pastoring, missionarying is way more than just preaching a sermon to people with a bone in their nose. That's Sparta preaching, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. Next point. You guys have to tell me the point. My, my chart, chart four doesn't have numbers on it because I built it on my phone uh, in a service the other day when I should have been paying attention to something else. But this is what the Lord was talking to me about. The ministry calling is anointed to build the kingdom. This is just something you have to observe. If you're called to the ministry, and we all are, are all called in some capacity, whether it's helps or service, hospitality, it all is an anointing to build the kingdom. But the marriage anointing, the calling to marriage, is called to build the kingdom as well. You're not just called to get married and go off and have these Instagram fake trips. You're called to build a family. You're called to build a relationship that endures and weathers any storm. You're called to have children, and then you present to God godly seed. Once you have children, your greatest calling and focus is now on discipling those kids, not putting them in the basement with a Nintendo Switch and Netflix and having nothing to do with them. Your kids' success will rise and fall on your investment in them. So both callings, both the ministry and marriage, is an anointing to build the kingdom. Unfortunately, too much of what we do with the church today is repair broken families because they probably should have never been a family in the first place. So if we're always repairing our tanks, we're never actually going to battle. Think about that. If we're always repairing the gunship, if we're always repairing the Humvee, if we're always repairing the boat, if we're always repairing the cannon, we're never actually advancing. And most of church time is spent repairing broken people because they come from broken homes and broken begets more broken. At some point, we have to stop all that. Let that grow up, grow out, or go home and advance with the next generation. Yes, sir. Amen. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. Point five. The ministry calling is anointed to lead people. So when you are called to the ministry, there's an anointing to lead people. You lead them to Christ and you lead them in discipleship. If you have a ministry, you're leading your employees. If you have a church, you're leading your sheep. So there's this anointing on that ministry calling to lead, but it's the same in marriage. The marriage calling comes with it, an anointing to lead a wife. That's what Paul said. When you lead about a sister, you make her your wife. That's in Corinthians. If you can't lead a woman, she's not your wife. If she's leading you, I don't know what you are. Maybe her beard. <laughs> Women don't lead men. Women don't lead men. Women don't lead men. We already read it in Ephesians that the head of every woman is her husband, head of every wife. So don't marry somebody who won't lead. This is why we also said you don't pursue men when you're single. And nobody likes that anymore because everybody wants to go pick their spouse. Well, one of the things we also said was the reason a woman will pursue a man is she wants to control who her selection is because she comes from a place of brokenness where she wants stability she's never had. So she feels like she has to go select him, handpick him, so she can have safety. That's not how it works, sweetie. Get that resolved with Christ. God will bring you the man you need. He will be the right one. But if you go select him yourself, it's not going to be the right one. 
And it takes tremendous faith. First Peter 3 says as much. Tremendous faith for the woman to submit and trust her man, calling him Lord. But that's why they're called holy women of God. Yeah. I understand it. Sometimes women are frustrated. Men can be total duds, but I'm sorry. You selected a dud. You courted a dud. You asked a dud to marry you. You married a dud. Now your marriage is a dud. Yeah. Prophesy life to it. Yeah. Ask God for help and mercy. Amen. There's an anointing to lead a wife and kids, which means men, find your voice. Yeah. Amen. 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 Women, don't emasculate them below the belt. Don't emasculate them above the neck. Let them have a voice. Because they have to lead. Also, men, don't let your wife do all the parenting. The anointing for a man is also to be a father. So she ha he has to know how to father. He has to know how to disciple. It isn't just mama doing it all day long. I get it when the kids are younger, mama has all the nurturing. But the husband, the father, begins to bring the kids along into adulthood. I can tell you as a dad of both girls and a boy, I parent both of them differently. Because I've got to make a young man out of my boy, and I've got to make young ladies out of my girls. I have to harness them differently. If they're left to their own devices, Proverbs says they will bring me shame. Let me also say something I heard recently that I think find to be one of the most retarded statements ever made about parenting. An acquaintance of mine, to keep the guilty as anonymous as possible, said, you know, my daughter is in high school now and she's coming to her own opinions and we need to respect those. And I thought, you're a moron. You're not discipled either. Because Ephesians says in the Greek, this, and I've taught it, that you're to teach the people, the children. You're to train them and nourish them. And the, the Greek says, you're to teach them what to think and how to think. So we don't let our 15-year-olds come to their own conclusions. Lay out the data. Walk them through it logically. Walk them through it scripturally. What my acquaintance was saying is, my kids becoming more secular, I acknowledge it, and please give them room to go to hell. My Bible teaches us parents, specifically chapter 6 here, if you look at verse 4, that you're to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word admonition, to admonish someone in the Greek, literally means to put or place in their mind. We tell our kids how to process stuff. We tell them what to make of it. And they'll bring it back to us and they'll judge things by it. For whatever it's worth, Dr. Barclay in these conferences, he has a lot of smoke and lights now. That's my friend's doing. So during worship, there's a lot of smoke and lights going on. Lydia turns around during worship, not quiet. Daddy, you teach that churches shouldn't have smoke or lights. Why do they have it here? I do teach that. Be quiet. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> I tell her how to process things, and then I give her the explanation for it. And then I have to be able to explain stuff that we don't agree with. So I went to her uncle. I said, hey, you know my kids love you. They want to know why you have so much smoke and lights. He said, well, tell her we don't Sunday mornings. We just do it for conferences, and there's nothing wrong with a little bit if the young people like it. I know it upsets the old people. All right, you tell her. She's your niece, and you buy her teeth. So he does. He gives her money for all the teeth she loses. That's the only reason they love him is because every time they lose a tooth, he gives them money. <laughs> Saves me money. We should be taking that money and putting it aside for not college. All right, next point. We should be anointed to lead. What number are we on, Nick? Six. Ministry and marriage are ordained of God. We probably should have put that one first. I was making this list out of order. Should I have had more time and not had to drive all day yesterday? I'd have put this in a better order, but this will help you meditate on it. They're both ordained of God. Ministry is ordained of God. Marriage is ordained of God. We don't enter into either lightly. If it's ordained of God, we don't just flippantly go become apostles. We don't go flippantly go to the mission field and expect people to support us. And we shouldn't just jump into a marriage and expect people to support us. Well, I don't understand why you don't support us. Because you're not qualified to be in a marriage. You're not qualified to even be engaged. You can't even clean up your room. You can't even boil eggs without burning water. You're going to kill this man. <laughs> Pastor Okwoko was big on it. He talked about home training. He said, if that woman has no home training, send her back. 
Harry Belafonte had a similar song out of the islands that said the same thing uh, about he have to send the woman back uh, to her mother for training, and when she comes back to me, we'll live together in harmony. <laughs> her biscuits are lard. I can hardly chew. That's one of the lyrics. She's only focused on herself and fancy clothes. He says, my pockets are full of holes while you wear fancy clothes. He said, you need to go back to mama. You're not ready for marriage. It's a Harry Belafonte song from the 50s. It's a good song. Maybe I'll play it. We'll see how this service ends up. I got 15 more minutes till I should start landing this thing. And I got like nine more points. <laughs> ordained of God. Marriage is ordained of God. But that comes back to many are called, fewer chosen. Point seven. Of course, this is the influence of uh, the whole message. Both require preparation. Ministry requires years and years of preparation. And to be successfully married, to launch into marriage, takes years of preparation. Ideally, as we're putting forth a new standard, though it's nothing new, it's just a, a recovered standard, we're preparing our children for marriage from the time they start playing with Barbies and making Barbie go to the store. When Lydia was four, three, four years old, she really liked Star Wars. We let her watch a little bit of it. She was fascinated with Star Wars. We're talking about uh, the prequels or whatever, because the other ones hadn't really come out yet. She was fascinated by the family dynamic of Star Wars. And her questions weren't, what are lightsabers and what's the force? Now, whose mommy is that? Now, who's the daddy? Now, does he know he has a sister? Does she know that's the brother? And that was her mindset because it's in a little girl's heart. And I'm trying to force her to like Star Wars so I can justify buying toys. <laughs> so then I bought her this like Han Solo speeder. And so she had a princess lay in Han Solo and she took the speeder to the grocery store, like the pretend grocery store. And there's Anakin, even though he's the dad, he's a little boy. So they put him in between. And she, as three-year-old, she would take Anakin and Han Solo and Princess Leia. And I don't even think that genealogy works right, but she didn't care. They're going to the store because she's seeing how families live that. We go to the store. Now, Bud, when he's two and three, he doesn't care about the store. He rips heads off and blows things up. It doesn't matter. Should it be ripped off or blown up? That's a boy. It's aggression. This preparation takes years. Years ago, I was studying the Jesuits. They're very secular today and not worth following. But they were originally under Loyola. They were tremendous missionaries. And at the height of their missionary, we're talking 15th, 16th, 17th century, they, the Jesuits, I, I couldn't find this. I was looking for it yesterday. I want to do some research. I remember reading somewhere that when they, from the time they answered the call to the time they were sent into the New World, North America, to be missionaries was 17 years of preparation. I remember that statistic from a book. I could not find it doing some brief research yesterday. But their preparation wasn't just ecclesiology. It wasn't theology. It was survival. It was bushcraft because you're leaving Europe to go to the new world. It was hunting, trapping, flint napping, skinning animals, 17 years of survival skills because they're going to go into hostile places to preach the gospel. Many of them were martyred by the Native Americans. They were skinned alive, filleted alive, and tortured to death. But 17 years of preparation to go die a martyr in the year or two. We fall in love our freshman year in college and want to be married our sophomore year. And we think we're prepared. Ministry takes preparation. From the time I recognized I was called at 19, the time I was trusted with this church was I was 31, so that's 14 years. That's not right. 12 years. That's my math. That's why my degree's in rocks, and the Lord let me write a book about plants. No math involved. <laughs> Man, we're at 14. That's stupid. 19 to 31 is 12, right? Yes, sir. Please help me. Yeah. You're just as fuzzy as I am. What'd you get your degree in? Business? MBA? Do you have to do math with that? Not much anymore. Don't trust them. All right. So my was 12 years of preparation and ministry along the way. Youth leading, youth leader, helps ministry, every department in my local church. Just to even barely begin to have a successful start. And a lot of folks want to get married because it's just what culture does now. We have to recognize it requires preparation, and moms and dads should be putting that in their kids so they have a, an advantage from the very beginning. Number seven, is that we're on? 
training. They both require training. Just because you're called doesn't mean you've been trained. Ministry takes training. One of my biggest complaints, I'll have it out with Pastor Vaughn in heaven one day. If you knew I was going to take over this church, sir, why didn't you prepare me? Why didn't you train me? I had training, but never for pastoring. It was always the mission field. It's teaching. I can teach all day long. I had to learn how to pastor from scratch. Nobody really helped me. It requires training. So you're training uh, conflict resolution in children, conflict resolution with peers. When they get into high school and their emotions and hormones are raging, you teach them how to resolve conflict because they're going to marry somebody one day. They're going to fight with cats and dogs. And when they're not parented properly, they're going to be weird married people who begat weird grandkids. And so there has to be training, just like there's training for pastoring. And we, I continue to be trained how to handle this situation and that situation. Just like in marriages, we're, we're training my own marriage right now. It's not just training. My next point is continued training or maintenance. To be a successful minister requires maintenance. That's why we go to conferences that's why I'm always studying. I'm always reading another five books at a time. I'm always listening to other sermons. It requires maintenance. So does marriage. To be prepared for marriage requires training and maintenance once you're even in the marriage so that you keep this thing clipping along. Now, these standards, are, I don't think, are unreasonable, but when you compare them to what America does, Daddy, I met this boy. He is so handsome. He's asked me to marry him. When did you meet him? Thursday. It was so divine. We stayed up all night for three days talking. It's my soulmate. Look at the ring. Oh my gosh. Look at the ring. Wrong hand. Look at the ring. This is Europeans and South Americans. Look at the ring. Look at the ring. Oh, Daddy, I need 50 grand. What, for therapy? Or bail once I murder this kid? <laughs> What's our next number, Nick? You're, you're, you got the NBA. Ten, are you sure? How many fingers have you got? I can't see that far. Ten. You're not from Sparta. Number ten has a purpose. Both have a purpose. And it's not self. Ministry has a purpose, and it's not self. To be a minister, you have to love people. To be a minister, you're going to lay down your life for people. To be a minister, you're going to be bothered by people. We exist, we ministers exist to die all the day long for people. But marriage is the same calling. It's, it has a cause, it has a purpose, and it's for somebody else. You don't, you don't get married for self. Not right, anyway. You can unlawfully get married to satisfy self. I'm so lonely. He makes me feel important. He's going to make me look good on social media. That's the, that's the wrong intention, wrong purpose. The purpose for marriage is to live for somebody else. We saw it in Ephesians 5. You give yourself for her that you might wash her with the water by the word, that you might present her as not having spot, blemish, wrinkle, or any such thing. You live for her. You live for him. You don't live for self. And if you get married for self, you're going to live for self, and your marriage is going to be horrible. And if you get into ministry for self, and it's all about your name and your facial recognition and your, your marquee, then you're a horrible minister. We lay our lives down for the sheep, and in marriage, you lay your life down for your spouse. And if both people are laying down their lives for their spouse, then the marriage flourishes. But if one is a parasite and the other is a, a fat dog with lots of blood, we're going to have an issue. Number 11. Ministry must be qualified for. You must qualify. And we might put this one last, but again, my order is as I was praying and coming up with it. You have to qualify for ministry. Paul said, I thank God who, after he counted me faithful, put me in the ministry. Now, there was potential and there was a calling on the road to Damascus. Paul was already doing a work for God. It was just the wrong kind of work. And God called him. But we know from church history and from the book of Acts that loosely it was another 14 or 15 years before he was sent out with Paul and Barnabas as that team to do missionary work. And even then he was the assistant to Barnabas. 14 years of preparation, though the calling came on the road to Damascus. You have to qualify for ministry. We don't send just anybody out. We don't just send anybody to start a church. We don't just send anybody to the mission field. You have to qualify for it. We don't just even use anybody for departments around here. You have to qualify. We don't just use anybody as a deacon. We don't promote just anybody to the eldership. You have to qualify. 
And if everything else with marriage and ministry has been parallel, then marriage comes under the same pattern. You have to qualify for marriage. Do you think a drunk qualifies to be married? Do you think a porn addict qualifies to be married? Do you think a striker, an abuser is qualified to be married? Do you think an unemployed glutton who wants to do nothing but watch movies and play video games all day? No, you and I know that these would destroy the covenant. Do you think a lazy woman qualifies to be married? Can she obey the biblical commands and care for her husband? Do you think someone who wastes all her money on you know, whatever she wants to buy and, and does nothing but eat all day long and stay on social media, do you think she qualifies to be a wife or a mother? No. You have to qualify to be married. It's a covenant. It's a calling. It's an ordination. If every other ordination has criteria to meet before we perform the ritual, why is marriage the one we can just do if we want? Who are you to get in my way? And we're going to elope and go to Elvis. Well, I'm glad Elvis has his hand on you. You do know Elvis is dead, right? Vegas is called Sin City. So you have an impersonator of an obese pillhead laying his hands on your covenant in Sin City with someone you met a month ago. We've just cheapened the sacrament of Christ and the church. Number 12. Ministry can be illegally obtained. Ministry can be illegally obtained. You can leave your pastor and go start a church down the road. You can abandon your denomination and go be a missionary. You can split the church and steal some sheep. You can have a social media ministry, and if that's all you have, you don't have a ministry. Dr. Barclay says, if you're a five-fold minister, if you're a full-time minister and somebody other than you knows it, that's how he, he deliberates or uh, delineates it. Ministry can be illegally obtained. There are a lot of illegal ministries. There was, uh, there was a ministry one time I was kind of fretting over because they were doing some unlawful things in the kingdom, and I didn't know what to do with it. I was praying about it. And the Lord spoke to me concerning it. He spoke to me out of the Gospels where Jesus said, Let them alone. Any tree my Father has not planted, it shall be uprooted and destroyed. And that's what the Lord spoke to me about a church. I said, Yikes. Yes, sir. Hands are off. Not my problem. I'll trust you, Lord. Have mercy on the sheep when the shepherd is uprooted and his ministry is destroyed. But if ministry can be illegally obtained, we know marriage can be. And if an illegal ministry hurts people, what would an illegal marriage do? By illegal, we mean unlawful in the spirit. You can legally go down to the justice of the peace and dishonor God and have some, some law, lawyer or judge adjudicate drop a gavel, but that's just so cheap. Both can be illegally obtained. And because both can be illegally obtained, number 13, well, you can be defrocked from ministry. That means stripped. If you fail the kingdom, you can be stripped from your authority and your privilege and your authorization and your anointing. And most preachers, when they're defrocked, they become salesmen of some kind because they get addicted to being around people and they get addicted to talking and they get addicted to that interaction and they get addicted to the, quote, sale. I would like to see a study, maybe Barna could do it, how many preachers, when they fail and fall, go into sales, whether car sales or insurance sales. I would say over 50, 60%. I don't get it. If, if I were to be defrocked, God forbid, I would not go into sales. I would go back underground and do geology. I like the solitude anyway. But if you can be defrocked from ministry, we know you can be defrocked from marriage. It's called divorce. Abandonment. You're stripped of your rights as a father. You're stripped of your rights as a husband. You're stripped of your rights as a mother. You're stripped of your rights as a wife. This is serious stuff. And we're the nation that invented the 24-hour marriage chapel. Actually, they don't even call it a marriage chapel. They call it a wedding chapel. Because they do weddings. They don't help marriages. Wedding is the momentary 
ritual. Marriage is the lifetime sacrament. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody who got married in Vegas or at a Gatlinburg chapel or, you know, somewhere with somebody who got their internet pedigree. I just need to raise the standard because as it is, it's just sifting and getting worse and worse. I'm ashamed to tell you the first wedding I ever did was to help a couple in this church and it was Hawaiian themed. I told him, you guys can dress Hawaiian if that's important to you, but I'm not. But we let palm trees in here and it was kind of a luau. I will never do that level of stupidity again. I was trying to help them. They were pregnant out of wedlock or maybe, maybe they had a baby out of wedlock. They're not married anymore, by the way. My first marriage I, wedding I performed doesn't even exist anymore. And then I found out my grandfather, who was a Baptist pastor, wouldn't even marry everybody that asked for it. I thought, well, why, why am I just now hearing this? You can do that? You can tell people no? He would interview them, preach the gospel to them. Is you're not a Christian? I'm not, no. And there's a lot of pastors that do that. If you're not a believer, I'm not marrying you. We now, if, you don't, if you're not a member of our church, I'm not doing your wedding because I need to make sure you're a disciple. Husbands can be defrocked as can wives. Last point, 14 or 15? 14. My mind's all over the place. And this is perhaps the most important. Ministries produce spiritual children. If you're not producing spiritual children, you're not really an effective minister. Now, granted, you might be somewhere off in Timbuktu or Oogala Boogala or the high plains of Tibet. It may take you 20 years to get a child in the spirit, but you'll eventually produce them. Same with marriages. They produce children. They are life-producing. And I think with 15 points that are identical between ministry and marriage, we ought to really reevaluate how we view this sacrament, this covenant, and this calling called marriage. And if we know our children are called to be married, we should be preparing them according to their level of understanding where they're at. Even Bud Bud, my five-year-old boy, says, Daddy, one day I'm going to be a daddy. Amen. I'm going to be bigger than you. Amen. Do it. And then he says, and I will rock, rock you as he will rock me. He will hold me. I'll take it, boy. He's already planning on being a daddy one day. So this is what men do, boy. This is how we do things. Dry that up. We're not crying over that. Go, go kiss your mother. Go, go tell your sisters you're sorry. In my household, we're very good at saying I'm sorry because we're always sinning against each other. It's part of family, right? We're yelling, we're snipping, we're biting, we're raising our voice. And I like peace in my home. 15 points, which hopefully helps us see marriage in a different light. All we've understood for the last 30 years is I'm lonely or lusty. Therefore, here she is, here he is. All we've understood is he showed me attention on Instagram or TikTok. Ooh-wee, now we're texting. <laughs> you're going to be divorced in a year. And you're going to have a kid that's going to suffer for it. With young people... Please hear me. Do not ever let somebody you've just met have more credence, more weight, more influence in your life than the spiritual elders that have known you your entire life. You can tell it's a demon of deception when you take a young man and he falls in love with a girl. He's known her two months and she's pulling him away from the spiritual family that has prayed for him, interceded for him, trained him, discipled him, and has turned his ear against from their counsel. And you can tell it's a demon when it's a young girl who falls in love with some dumb boy, no matter how handsome or strongly chiseled his jaw is. <laughs> and within three or four months, he's pulling her away from her spiritual family that has been with her from the time of her birth. It's a demon. What you ought to do is you fall in love with this boy or girl. Don't even fall in love. That's stupid. <laughs> it's a joke, but be very reluctant to fall in love. Say, you like me? Come here. We have this thing at our church called the gauntlet. <laughs> Elders, this is a girl speaking. This is this guy that likes me. Have at him. And we get all the elders and the church fathers around him and say, all right, boy, you like our girl, huh? How long have you been saved? You hooked on porn? What's your, faith, what's your relationship with mom and dad like? You got a job? What's your budget look like? You got any money in savings? You got any investments yet? 
You sleeping with anybody? Who'd you have sex with for the first time? She's still a booty call? Why do you like our girl? I mean, we ought to just drill them. <laughs> Same, you boys, you find some girl you like. Why are you afraid to bring them to our church? Why are you afraid to bring that little floozy to our church? This is where you've been trained. This is, where, this is who you are. Why are you attracted by that little Philistine floozy? A floozistine. Bring them. Let Miss Manda and the elders' wives and some of our church mamas get a hold of her. Well, if you have to date outside the church, you're, you're exposing the nature of the relationship. You can't bring them to church. You can't bring them around. Uh, there's a problem. The American church apparently has a 51% divorce rate. I would tell you charismatics probably have a higher divorce rate just by our own numbers. But you, all you have to do is watch Christian television and realize probably half of those ministers aren't with their original wives that they started ministry with. They married up. The Lord told them that they needed a better wife to go on to the next stage of ministry. Heresy. This thing is serious. It reflects Christ in the church. So men, you must become like Christ. Women, you must trust like the church. And together you become a living sacrament that brings forth godly seed that God would be glorified and the church would continue. But honestly, at this current rate, we're not going to have anybody left in the kingdom. It'll be all the immigrants coming in from Southern America who have a strong Catholic faith that will maintain some kind of semblance of Christianity in this nation because the, the American church is shrinking. The American church has traditionally been white and black because those are our two major demographics. It's shrinking. Black churches are folding. White churches are folding. If we don't rekindle this true well of marriage and maintain it, there won't be anything left of our society. And then what will God do? Amen.